This evening, I'd like to begin by sharing with you a poem. It is a poem by W.S. Merwin. It's called Here Together. In some ways, I just want to start with the title because I think there's something quite powerful about the title, just these two important words of here, here we are, here together. And he says, he begins, these days I can see us clinging to each other as we are swept away by the current. I am clinging to you to keep you from being swept away and you are clinging to me. We see the shores blurring past as we hold each other in the rushing current. The daylight rushes unheard far above us. How long will we be swept away in the daylight? How long will we cling together in the night? And where will it carry us together? So here we are together. It's such an important place to begin when we come together like this, especially in a spiritual tradition like this. And for me, some of that poem conveys this quality of caring for each other. You know, I'm, I'm gonna hold on to you so that you don't get swept away and you're holding on to me too, as we're in this rushing current as we find ourselves in the midst of challenge, of turmoil in life. Here we are together in the turmoil of life, that rushing current. And for me, I, I wanna use this as a, a stepping off point into really the, a, a beginning teaching, kind of a fundamental teaching that the Buddha gives us, it's just the Four Noble Truths. And many of you know this first noble truth is so important. It's, it's basically beginning with, you know, we've got a problem. And that's what the Buddha is so curious about is there's a problem and let's see if we can do something about this problem. And he caused this problem dukkha. And it's a difficult Pali word to, to, to define, you know, to translate. You know, sometimes it's translated as Suffering or stress, I think, is another great definition, or not okayness. You could say it's that rushing current, that problem that we have, that predicament of being a human being. And the beginning of the path is to acknowledge and name that. And you could say a lot of this lies in, in the minds of people like you and me, the anxiety and stress that you experience in your life. And have you noticed that sometimes we can get so lost in our lives, so lost in our lives that we don't slow down to get a sense of this underlying stress that's driving our lives. This is, this is so much of what we're exploring. And just to kind of clarify this, this is again, what I'm talking about Gonna share my screen, screen here quickly. Can you see my screen there? Can you see that? Maybe give me a thumbs up if you can see that. This is the truth of dukkha, that there's suffering, there's stress. Not to deny that there are 
you know, there's definitely good things in life, but this is what we're curious about. And then the second tr noble truth, the truth of the cause of dukkha, trying to get a sense of how suffering, how stress arises in our lives. And then the truth of the cessation of dukkha, where's, where's the, the freedom from this? And then what's the path that's gonna lead us to that freedom? The Four Noble Truths. And so I wanna say here, we come to sit together in meditation as a Sangha. And, and the Buddha says, when, when a Sangha truly functions, it's, it's, it's one thing, it, when arising in the world arises for the welfare of many, for the happiness of many, for the welfare and happiness of many beings, both human and divine. So we come together, we come together, you could say, and I want to again show you, uh, share you, with you an image about this. We come together and it kind of looks like this. Small group, or maybe it looks like this. Right? We come together in some kind of group here. And if we slow down with coming together like this, you might see that we've also got a problem when we come together as a group but it's a problem on the systemic or collective level. It's another kind of rushing current that for me and my spiritual practice has been so important to start to examine, to understand the arising of it in my life and in the lives of the communities that I'm in as well. So what do you see in these images? Do you, do you notice something? Hopefully you notice something. It's a bunch of white people, a white context, or you could say more specifically, it's filled with people who look like white people. I don't know how people identify. You know, I don't wanna, I wanna be cautious there. But we could guess, and it's a guess that most of these people could most likely pass as white in the society that we live here in this place that we currently call the US. And if you notice, sometimes we can get so lost in our lives, so lost in our lives, probably much more for white folks, that we don't slow down to get a sense of this other stress that is driving society, driving our communities in a group like this. So to slow down here, to begin to see how these images I was just sharing with you convey a different kind of rushing current that's all about suffering. You could say these images are actually conveying racism. And when I use the word racism, I mean the broader definition of this. So I want to be clear how I'm using this word. You know, the... Um, the professor uh, uh, Keolani uh, Keowani from, um, I think she's from uh, Wesleyan University, puts it well. She says, racism is a structure, not an event. And so tonight, I'm hoping we can see that this structure of whiteness, like in a white, predominantly white group, when a group is 
is has more white people than kind of the the uh, the ratio that you would find in the United States, right? Greater than sixty one percent non white of of white non Latinx folks. So there's something going on here, and and I think there can be really interesting to start to get a sense of of how this is so connected with structural racism of when we come together like this and there's a predominance of whiteness. And I think this is so important to understand really the, the, the depth of racism, not only in my own life, but in the communities that uh, we're in, like Flagstaff Insight Meditation Community. This is why we we, we sent out that letter about confronting racism. Yeah, there's racism out there, but we also had this aspiration as a board to do our work as a community, to explore this as our spiritual path, not just to write a letter, to be in the right group, but to, to take responsibility, which is a really different thing to commit to something like that to start to see the dynamics of, of race and racism and to situate it in this way. You know, for example, in 1946, and this is the language of 1946, a, a journal, journalist asked the, the novelists, the, the writer Robert Wright, about the, um, the, the Negro problem in the United States. And he said, there isn't any Negro problem, there's only a white problem. pointing to how racism works, the structures of it. And to see this clearly is to understand the first noble truth on a systemic level. This other dimension, or at least an invitation for your spiritual practice, something that's really deepened my own spiritual practice. And when I get into this, I want to be clear. I'm not saying that white people are bad or a group of white people is a bad group. Like, I, I want to point out there are a lot of white people that I really like. Like my partner, she's a white person. I really like her. Some of you probably met her, Robin. <laughs> really good person. I love F a lot of people in FIMC. A lot of people on the board, they're white. I really like them. My parents, I like my parents. And you know what? I'm white. And I kind of like myself. So I want to be really clear. This isn't about, am I good or bad? Are white people are good or bad? Is whiteness good or bad? It kind of misses the exploration, don't you think? If I'm worried if I'm one of the good ones or the bad ones. And I want to acknowledge, when I started looking at racism, it was so challenging to get into it because there was so much fear of being seen as one of the bad white people. And I wanted to make sure I wanted to be seen as the good white person. You ever notice this? This is kind of the white anxiety that can happen that can prevent such an important exploration. And, and again, wanna point out like, I'm talking about groups of people tonight. And you could say it's like, instead of looking at the different parts of how a car functions, we wanna look at the whole car. There's a lot of differences in the car, but how the car moves and where it moves to. And just with any group, like with white, white folks, there's a whole range, there's so many differences and uniqueness and all kinds of individual characteristics that kind of get washed out when we group people. So, so I don't want to deny that. The same thing when we talk about people of color. I mean, what a huge group with so many different 
differences there. But I find that when I step out and get a broader view of how group dynamics work, wow, it brings another dimension to what I'm doing here on my spiritual path. So important. So what I'm going to be sharing with you, because I'm talking more on this group systemic level, it's not going to be always exact and precise. And it's going to be in the midst of a really, really complicated and complex subject, race and racism. So again, what I want us to kind of be curious about is coming back to this image of how is it when we come together as a group, maybe sometimes like this, maybe not completely white like this, but when there's an overrepresentation of white people, how, do, how, does this, how is this a, um, a, a dynamic of, of racism? and race. So I think one of the things that happens is that when whiteness is dominant, it can dominate in a way that makes others invisible or less than human. And I think this is where it gets so complicated. Because this is what happens, this is the history of this country. Whiteness is dominant and then it dominates in a way that oppresses people and makes others invisible. So let's take a step back and notice the context that this is happening in when we come together in a, in a, in a meditation group like this. What's the context that we come together in? It's a context where we can see whiteness dominating. So for example, like if you think of our Congress, it's made up of 78% white folks in this Congress, which is again, larger than the 61% share of the US population that I said. Our president and vice president, they're white. When you think of the NFL, 70% of the players are black, 94% of the owners are white. The 10 richest Americans, guess what? I know you can answer this. Guess what? They're white. The top milita military advisors of this country, they're all white. And then we find this high, high ratio of white folks in the leaders of the largest American companies, right? Hollywood executives, the people who decide what music is going to get produced, the people who decide the TV shows that you watch, the people who influence the books you read, the people who decide what news gets covered, U.S. governors, U.S. mayors, there's such a high percentage of white people. And why I mention these particular groups, and maybe you get a sense of why this is, is, is that I'm mentioning people who have a lot of power in making decisions that impact all of our lives. And most of those people are white folks. And just a, a backdrop, this comes from actually a, a news article, but it's uh, referenced in this book, White Fragility, that there's going to be a, a study group around if you're interested. 
So remember, this didn't come by accident that there's more white people in power than other folks. This is the whole history of this land, right? From the process of colonization to that intertwining with 250 years of the legacy of, of, of slavery. And then even that things in some ways got even more violent for especially African-Americans with the, the, the uh, during uh, reconstruction and after that, the, the high rate of murder and lynching Jim Crow laws, redlining and housing segregation, segregation. And then the programs that we see in our history that favored whites more than blacks, the New Deal. What did the New Deal, who did that favor more? White people more than black people. The GI Bill of 1944. And the list goes on. And I mentioned this just so that we can see the, the, the momentum of history where there's, where white dominates in all of these different ways and it has a kind of momentum. There can be something so dangerous about not knowing history and how it can still be playing out. And of course, all of you probably know here the, the dynamics of racial discrimination that's still prevalent. I mean, just if, if you look at a few years ago with Airbnb, them noticing that Airbnb hosts were less likely to rent to African-Americans than whites. And similar patterns of discrimination in, in other services like Uber and Lyft and TaskRabbit, these same kind of dynamics. And research of study after study showing how there's this racial bias, often unconscious, that percolates in our society, this system of discrimination. So what is it like when we come back to that, to not only see individuals in this, and again, I'm not trying to point fingers, I'm not trying to say that these are bad people in this picture or around us and our group, but to see that we've come together because of certain causes and conditions that are connected with race realization, even when we come and sit and meditate. This is interdependence. This is interbeing. And this is the, the interdependence that the Buddha was most curious about was things being dependently arisen around dukkha, around suffering. Seeing this on a systemic level. This too is dukkha. This is that rushing current. It's the water we're swimming in. And I, I do want to point out there's complexities to this. And I, and I want to point out that for me to really get a sense of what it is to fully be together, to truly be together as Sangha, rather than merely being together, to address these issues that happen on a systemic level so we can create true community. I think this is part of what we're doing on a Buddhist path. It's not only the, the Buddha, the Dharma, it's Sangha. And the Sangha can be so tricky and it needs so much of our work as practitioners, I think. It's not just about our own individual lives, it's about this collective dimension. And, and I wanna just point out, and I'm not gonna get into it, the complexity of race and whiteness 
and how whiteness dominates and how it intermingles with our society in ways that do make it quite complicated. And it's even when African-Americans are, for example, I'm, I'm talking as you mo see mostly about anti-black racism. So this is gonna be another example of this. Of, for example, when African-Americans are made visible by society and celebrated, it can be a complex process. You know, and again, some images around this. Maybe. And I love this image, right? This <laughs> is Michael Jordan in his heyday. Amazing picture, right? Or LeBron James. This is a, a classic photo of him. You know, the sense of how moving it can be to be touched and moved by those in our community. And yet, it can be so complicated in our society, especially around consumerism. And so the next image I'm going to show you is a, is a, a photograph from an artist. And you'll see it is from uh, uh, the artist Hank, Will uh, Hank uh, Willis Thomas that I think is speaking to this and it's called uh, Branded. And I think it's speaking to the complexity of our relationship to you could say the black body. And it's called Branded. That symbol of Nike. So even how my heart and mind is impacted by how African-Americans are made visible to me in advertising and sports, it's complicated because it can reinforce a loss of their humanity, which reinforces a quality of othering, which just reinforces this dynamic of whiteness being dominant in a dominating way. So this is complicated and complex and important if we want to find out a way out to truly be together rather than merely being together. So I'm using this to point to something. I use the, the image of all of us white folks sitting together. And again, I wanna acknowledge even in this group, there's a mix here. I have no idea how people identify themselves, but my guess is probably predominantly white. And what I wanna point out is how race and racism is, is interwoven in our lives so deeply. And I was just trying to point that out with some of these examples to give a bigger context, to really give some substance to this next quote I wanna share with you. This is from Ian Lopez. He says, race dominates our lives. It dominates our personal lives. It manifests itself in our speech, dance, neighbors, and friends. Our very ways of talking, walking, eating, and dreaming are ineluctably shaped by notions of race. Race determines our economic prospects. The race conscious market screens 
and selects us for manual jobs and professional careers. Red lines financing for real estate, green lines are access to insurance, and even raises the price of that car we need to buy. Race permeates our politics. It alters electoral boundaries, shapes the disbursement of local, state, and federal funds, fuels the creation and collapse of political alliances, and twists the conduct of law enforcement. In short, race mediates every aspect of our lives. I invite you to consider this. How does race mediate your life? And being white, what I notice is sometimes it's so difficult for me to notice it because what I need to notice is an absence. Yeah, there's certain things I worry about, but there's so many things I don't worry about because I'm white. Have you ever noticed that? That's how it plays out. If I'm going to go get a loan, I'm guaranteed that, that, that my race won't work against me. Like, I, I don't even have to think about that. And of course, the list goes on. So it's sometimes those absences. Can you see this too is that rushing current? This too is dukkha. This is part of one of the things that we want to see with the Four Noble Truths, to free this heart. But I need to start with this first noble truth of seeing that there is suffering, there is stress. Because if I don't see it, I can't start to address it. I can't take the steps towards freedom. And I think this is why what we've been starting to do here at FIMC is really creating opportunities to one, to learn and educate ourselves around this, to tie it into our practice at the same time, and also do the practice of seeing how our minds are entangled with this. So the first one, learning and educating ourselves. This is, this is the whole reason for these uh, learning circles that we're gonna be having tomorrow night. And then there's gonna be a study group that I, that I mentioned. And I'm gonna place this in the chat to see if, if you want to see the link to both of these, they're available. As a way of beginning to explore this, hopefully to explore it in community. Like right now I'm in a book study group. It is so fascinating. I feel like it's so freeing the more I learn about this and the more I start to intertwine it with my practice. So this is the, the first one. And then it's also seeing the mind and how it works and to begin to work with it. This is so much of what we explore, right? On Monday nights, you know what I'm talking about. This is so much the theme. And around this, one of the key things that's been so important is to begin with this idea that, or to remember that as a human being, all of us human beings have prejudices. In-group, out-group dynamics are so strong. And sometimes the idea around racism is what I need to do is I need to stop judging people. And I think a better place to begin is my mind's gonna judge people 
and then what I'm going to do about that. Because sometimes if I'm trying to get to the place of, oh, I don't want to be a person who judges everyone else, what do I do? I start to push away or repress any kind of arising of judgment of others. I don't see it. Why? Because I want to be a good person. And that gets in the way of our practice of seeing how the mind works. And I love a framework that I've been just playing with, with my meditation, which I, I, I so love, which is this framework of, and some of you might know this, the first thought and the second thought. You know, as someone says, we're not responsible for our first thought. We're not responsible. Judgment arises. But we are responsible for our second thought and first action. In your meditation, can you notice the first thought when you see someone else or you come across someone else and to be okay with it? You're a human being. That's the human predicament. There's going to be judgments. There's going to be prejudices. And then to, to cultivate the skillful second thought and the skillful first action so you don't follow the first thought. Do you hear how there's this quality of acceptance, but also deciding a different way? And this is all in the service so that we can truly be together rather than merely being together. To create this arising in the world of true Sangha. As the Buddha said, a true Sangha arises for the welfare of the many, for the happiness of the many for the welfare and happiness of many beings, both human and divine. So thank you for your attention. Let's, let's take a couple minutes. Let's take, um, let's take three minutes to stand up and move around and then we'll come back and we'll sit so that we can engage in learning the skills needed to see this mind and heart and to free it. Let's come back in three minutes here. 